So the reading is from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and entitled, Jesus Changes Water into Wine. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they, are f- so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it would come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Good morning, please do sit down. And while the band are finding their seats, let me say thank you again for getting up early this morning. I'm looking forward to, just as my sermon finishes, people walking in the door who are thinking it's still 10.30. If they do, you can just all kind of turn and tap your watches at them or hiss or something <laughs> like that. Uh, we are going to be speaking about turning water into wine, which Dan uh, mentioned earlier, and we are having a barbecue. Unfortunately, there's no, those two things are not coming together. Uh, um, as far as I know, Martin... There's no wine. <laughs> Excellent, okay. Well, there's a shop down the road for start. So, uh, uh, so as you've heard, yesterday we had our first Easter party, and today uh, I've got the joy of... Thank you, whoever that was. Thank you. I've got the joy of speaking about another party, a wedding party. Uh, I don't know about you, but I think that people have two different opinions about weddings. You might fall into the category of people who just love weddings, everything about them, and anticipate them hugely. Or you might fall into the category of people that just really don't look forward to weddings at all. Now, we've got a wedding in a couple of weeks' time, Johnny. Uh, Johnny's getting married to the lovely Ailey in a couple of weeks. And as a family, we're very privileged to be going. So, Johnny, just cover your ears for the next minute or so. Uh, Because this is the time I have to admit I fall into the second category of people (laughs) that really do not like weddings. Uh, it's not the actual wedding service that I don't like. I really find those quite moving. It's the rest of it. It's all the hanging around. I'm getting some nods, many from men. Uh, how long is it between the service and the food? It takes forever. And then there's the s- photography. It just it goes on for ages. Weddings, to me, feel like they go on for days. And actually, in the passage that we had read to us earlier, can you imagine the wedding did go on for days? So we should count our blessings that we were born 21st century UK, not 1st century Israel, because that's the position that we find ourselves in in this passage, in a wedding that goes on for days and days, and which was actually a hugely important social occasion. We, love, we do look forward to weddings because they bring together two people that we love very much. But in those days, 
it was about bringing together two communities, two families. And so weddings came with much more meaning for the whole community than perhaps they do now. There's a real onus on social cohesion, social community. So these weddings that we hear about and we read about in John chapter 2 are not just going on for days, but they're really hugely important social occasions. And so we have that passage for a reason. And what I want to do with four brief points this morning is just to focus in on what is the significance of this passage that we had read to us. But before we dig deep into the passage, uh, let's pray. Uh, Dear God, we want to thank you for your word. Thank you for the Bible, which tells us all we need to know about you and how we can be in relationship with you. Would you please help us uh, through reading this passage, through what I have to say, to help us to understand it more and to love Jesus more as a result. Amen. I'd like you to have a Bible. If you haven't got one, uh, Andy's about to leap into action. If you'd like one, please put your hand up and one will come your way. And uh, please turn to John chapter 2. Kind of start at the back and work backward. Work, yeah, backwards. You'll find your way to John chapter 2. Now, one of the features of John's account of Jesus' life is he records a lot of Jesus' miracles. Uh, but he doesn't call them so much miracles as he calls them signs. And there's a reason for that. He wants it to be clear to us when we read a miracle that we know that there's a meaning to it, that it signifies something, that it points us to something. And quite helpfully, John tells us what that thing is. So if you just look at the last verse that we had read to us, verse 11, uh, that's going to help us understand what John is trying to show us through these signs. Verse 11 says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, in case we're in any doubt what John means... You don't need to turn to it, but in chapter 20 of his book, John writes this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, the miracles that he does write about, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Did you notice that repeated word, believe? John has recorded these signs so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And we're going to come back to that towards the end of my sermon here. So, when we look at the signs in John's Gospel, it's supposed to trigger questions in our mind. What is this sign telling us about Jesus? What's it telling us about who he is and why he came? What's it telling us about why we should believe in him? And that's what I want us to do with this passage in John chapter 2. So, back to the chapter. We're the first of Jesus' miraculous signposts, John tells us. And the question we have to ask is, okay, so what's it trying to point us to? And this is my second point, shame. I want us to see that this miracle of turning water into wine tells us who Jesus is and why he came. And it works at two levels. One level, which Dan talked to the kids about earlier. At the most obvious level, this tells us that Jesus is God. Because who else, after all, can turn water into wine? But there's so much more to it than that. There's so much symbolism involved in this passage. And that's what I want us to try and dig into. So let's head back in and look at uh, verse 3 with me. The wedding's going well, really well. But then there's a disaster. A disaster which 
if we run out of wedding, wine at Johnny's wedding in a couple of weeks' time, that's pretty bad. But it's not a disaster, it's not a catastrophe like it is in this situation here. This was, for, in terms of that social community, that social cohesion, a complete social no-no to run out of wine. In a, it was a traditional honour and shame culture, and this was going to heap shame upon the bride and groom and their family. I don't think we really get shame in 21st century UK culture. It's not really even a word that we like to use. It, it kind of carries so much meaning with it. Perhaps the only time we use shame nowadays is when we use phrases like Twitter shaming. So social media, it kind of tends to have some meaning, but otherwise it's lost. But I hope that by the end of the morning, you'll see that whereas many of us might think that the church seems to have a monopoly on making people feel guilty and shamed. Lots of people seem to feel like the church likes to lay it on with a trowel. Yeah, but I hope that by the end of the morning we can see that nothing could be more opposite of the truth of what the Bible has to say. Now, whatever we call it, whether you want to call it guilt or shame, regret, I think all of us can understand some of the feeling that this couple might have been going through when somebody taps them on the shoulder and says, we're out of wine. I mean, I'm sure we've all experienced that horrible gut-wrenching feeling when you've said something in, a, in the heat of a moment that you wish you hadn't said, which you can't get back. Or when you make a mistake at work, which you know you're really going to have to face the music for at some point. And it's the sort of feeling that you just can't shake, you can't let go. However much you try and um, kind of do something to distract yourself, it kind of really gets to you and you can't shake it off. It's like a cloud hanging over you. So I'm not talking here this morning about the right feeling of feeling sorry about something you've done and then uh, asking for forgiveness. I'm talking about this, this cloud that hangs over you, you can't shake, that really gives you that sense of you're not the person that you were designed and created to be. I don't know if any of you have seen the TV programme Suits. Anybody seen Suits? I know Ni Nigel has, he's getting the nod, I'm getting the nod. In the programme Suits, it's about lawyers, it's an American programme, and there's a very dysfunctional lawyer, he's actually my favourite character, uh, he's called Lewis, Lewis Litt. And there's one episode which actually appropriately is called Shame. And in that programme, he wrestles for quite a long time about making a decision about whether he should do something or not, that he knows is wrong, it's completely wrong, but he knows that in the short term it's going to give him a lot of pleasure. And he makes a decision to do that thing. Now, in the, in the programme, you can imagine American law office, they come up through the lift and they open up into a beautiful lobby in the lift. In the programme, Lewis, the, after he's done this thing, in his mind's eye, he comes out of the lift into the lobby and the whole of the law firm is there, dozens and dozens of employees, and they're all shouting, shame, 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 at him. And as he walks down the corridor into his office, they're all ch chanting and racing after him down the corridor. I think, it, although that's just a daydream and he wakes up from it, I think we can sort of recognise some of that feeling when we do something which we just can't shake, when we say something we really sh wish we hadn't, of that conversation playing itself over in our minds. It's as if our conscience is chanting shame, shame, shame at us. Because deep down inside, when we're honest with ourselves, I think either all of us have done something or said something that we feel regret and shame about, or we're really fearful of doing something that will make us feel that way. Psychologists say that's true. Psychologists uh, say that every human experiences guilt and shame. There's a psychology researcher 
I'd never heard of her, but you might have done, called Jessica Van Vliet. Uh, she said, when you start speaking to other people, you realize it's not just you that feels shame. You start to say to yourself, this is human, I'm human, others are human. Now, this idea of all humans feeling guilty or ashamed is actually a very biblical principle. Right from the very first book of the Bible in Genesis, God creates the world and people, and everything's perfect, but as soon as you get to chapter 3 of the very first book of the Bible, in that very famous incident, Adam and Eve eat of the fruit from the tree that God told them not to, and the Bible says they felt naked, they felt ashamed. They're feeling, I think, the ultimate shame of being separated from God. It's the sort of shame that all of us and every human being since Adam and Eve have felt when we say to God, you know what, we're just fine on our own, we don't need you, we don't need a creator, we can just manage fine, thank you. The Bible calls this sin, when we push God away and say, we can be God instead of you, God, that's sin. And the Bible says that we're all sinners and that all of us have done things which have led us to hurting ourselves or hurting other people and ignoring and pushing God away from us. Now, do you remember in Genesis 3 what Adam and Eve did when they felt naked and shamed? They covered themselves up, didn't they, with a fig leaf. They tried to hide their shame. It was a vain attempt to prevent God from seeing what they were really like. And I think that's pretty accurate for what we try and do with our own shame and guilt. Psychologists, if you ever read a magazine called Psychology Today, psychologists uh, say there's normally five or eight steps to dealing with your shame. I'm not going to go through them all, but in summary, they basically say either do something to cover your shame or guilt up, or try and pretend it doesn't exist. Um, recently, I was watching Room 101, and there's a lot of TV references. I don't, I, well, I was going to say I don't spend all my life watching TV, but... It's, uh, uh, Room 101, it's a gay TV panel show with Frank Skinner, and in it, celebrities go on and they choose things that they really don't like to put into uh, the kind of Orwellian Room 101 and get rid of forever. Uh, and Jerry Halliwell, do you remember her? Posh Spice? No, Ginger Spice, not Posh Spice, Ginger Spice. She said, I want to put guilt in Room 101, which I thought was quite interesting. And she said, uh, the one way to get rid of deal with guilt is to brush the guilt fairy off your shoulder. It's as simple as that, she said. Just brush the guilt fairy off the shoulder. Now, the problem with these approaches, the psychology approach, what I call the fig leaf approach to shame, like kind of covering it over or pretending it doesn't exist, or the ginger spice approach of the guilt fairy, is they don't actually deal with the root cause of shame. They just cover it over. It's temporary. But we all have our own fig leaves. We all have things that we do to try and hide or forget when we're feeling really bad about something, when we can't shake it off, when we've got that cloud hanging over us. It might be you work too hard. It might be you drink too much. It might be you just crack jokes and hide behind your humour. It might be that you hide in front of the telly or Netflix or in your busyness or in procrastination. We've all got our own things that we do, our own fig leaves, to cover up our regrets and our shame. But if you're anything like me, and you probably are, they don't deal with the job. They don't do it. I, don't, I know what I'm like. If, for example, on Friday I do something really wrong at work, and I've got to go and face the music on Monday, if I'm really busy over the weekend, I can sort of forget it a bit. But as soon as I get into the bed or in the bath, or as soon as I get up Monday morning, those sick-to-the-stomach feelings come flooding back. 
And the problem with fig leaves is they don't actually deal with the root cause of our guilt and our shame. They just cover the feelings up. So in our story today, when Jesus performs this miracle with the bride and groom experiencing humiliation, I think Jesus is uh, giving us a signpost which says, the ways you have to deal with your guilt, your shame, your regrets are superficial. They don't deal with the problem. But I, Jesus says, have come to deal with this problem completely and permanently. And by doing so, he's going to show us his glory and call us to believe in him. But how's he going to do that? That's my third point, the solution. And the miracle he performs signposts us to that. Did you notice in verse 6 that Jesus uh, uses these huge jars? don't know, 80... Well, hold on, some, Deborah, you read in old money. We had it on the screen in new money in litres, didn't we? 20 to 30 gallons uh, of these huge stone jars that weren't used for drinking water or wine normally. They were used for water for ceremonial washing for the Jewish people before they um, carried out a blood sacrifice. See, in times before Jesus, the Jewish people knew that they couldn't just go into the temple to worship God because their sin prevented them from doing so that their sin had to be punished. God's justice had to be satisfied. And so something had to die in their place. And so they would sacrifice animals, often lambs. But everyone knew that these little lambs couldn't really take their place permanently, couldn't deal with their sin once and for all. And that's why regular sacrifices were, were required. But when Jesus came, he was called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, all those little lambs that were being killed couldn't once and for all deal with our sin, but Jesus could. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, and then took our sin and our failure and our shame on his shoulders. He took our punishment for the sin and shame and gave us his perfectness, his righteousness. And we muck up time and time again, but Jesus died once and for all. That's what we celebrate at Easter, what we're going to be celebrating next week. So, to rescue this humiliated couple, or potential humiliation, Jesus uses these big ceremonial washing jars to turn water into wine. And by doing so, he's saying, all that Old Testament sacrificial system, I've come to fulfill once for all completely. And it's not just a Jesus-shaped fig leaf. That isn't what he's talking about. He's talking about a delete button, Tipex, something which gets rid of our sin permanently, deals with our shame forever. And the reason the Bible says that we can be free of shame is because Jesus takes our shame upon him. He had absolutely no reason to feel guilt or embarrassment or humiliation or shame, and yet he died a criminal's death. Couldn't be more humiliating. He was spat at. He had to carry his cross through the streets of Jerusalem. He wore a crown of thorns. And then on the cross, his father, God, turned his face away from him. Why? So that when we go to God, he turns his face towards us and sees us as his children, as guilt-free, as shame-free. The Bible says, and we've just sung this, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And I think this is exactly what's going through Jesus' mind when he performs this miracle. Did you notice again in verse 3, it's a very strange little incident. Mary, Jesus' mum, 
comes to him and says, Jesus, we've run out of wine. And Jesus answers in a not typical Jesus way, I don't think. He says, woman, or dear woman, why do you involve me? Why is that? What's the, why does he answer in what seems like quite a harsh way? Well, in verse 4, I think he tells us what's going on in his head. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, when Jesus talks about my hour, he's meaning his death, his death on the cross. So John uses this phrase to talk about Jesus quite often. He said, when Jesus says my hour, he means my death. So in John chapter 12, for example, when Jesus is going to die, he says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But I think that kind of makes the verse 3 even weirder in some ways. His mum says, hey Jesus, we're fresh out of wine. And Jesus says, so, it's not my time to die yet. You see, I think it's because Jesus knows that in order to fulfill the Old Testament sacrificial system, to cleanse us from our shame, he's going to have to die. So when his mother tells him the wine's run out, when he knows he's going to perform this miracle, he knows he's setting off on a path which will ultimately end in his death. How's Jesus going to deal with our guilt and our failure? By leaving his heavenly existence with his father, by coming to live a lonely life, by suffering the ultimate shame of a criminal's death on the cross, so that when we trust in God and in Jesus, our relationship with God could be made right again. It's how Jesus demonstrated his glory in the best possible way, and it's what we celebrate at Easter. So can you see how this is the opposite of the misperception that many people think that the church likes to make people feel guilty? The good news of Easter, of the Bible, is actually Jesus came to take our guilt and our shame on him, and he came to deal with the root causes of our guilt and shame, which is our sin. Now, before I move on to my final point, there's one more bit of symbolism I want to look at. You see, it's no coincidence, as Dan pointed out earlier, that this miracle takes place at a wedding. Because one day, for those of us that trust in Jesus and the cross to deal with our shame, we will experience an ultimate wedding feast. A wedding feast, the Bible says, where there'll be no more evil, no more sickness, no more tears, no more death. A kind of wedding feast that even I can look forward to. Those who put their trust in Jesus will be united with him forever as the great bridegroom. And Dan talked about extravagance and joy earlier, and we get a sense of that in this passage. In verse 9, we're introduced to the master of the banquet, if I was this bride and groom, I don't think I'd be paying him because his job was to make the wedding go with a swing and they've run out of wine. He doesn't, nobody doesn't say that in the passage, but he's, he's not doing well. Now, I don't know about you, but my approach to wine is if I can get a £10 bottle for a fiver, that's a deal. Yeah, because it makes people think I've spent more money on the wine than I really have. And in those days, it seems they had a similar approach to wine as well because they bring out the best stuff for the first couple of days and then when people were past their best, they'd bring out the cheap plonk and nobody would notice. But here, they're a few days into the wedding, the wine runs out, Jesus performs this miracle, and when the master of the banquet tastes the wine, he's amazed. He's absolutely amazed at the sheer quality of the wine. You see, when Jesus turns the water into wine, he does it excessively, lavishly, abundantly, extravagantly. It's a picture of God's love for us. It's a foretaste of that heavenly wedding feast for those that trust in Jesus. So you see, this miracle is packed with symbolism, 
and that should lead us, as I said right at the beginning, to ask the question, so what? What does it mean for us? And that's my last point. If this is true, so what? And to answer that question at the most basic level, I want to go back to verse 11 again. The so what of the Bible, the so what of the miracles that Jesus performed, the so what of this miracle in particular, is that we might believe in him. And that's the call to each of us today. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you seen his glory? And I don't mean do you just believe in Jesus as a historical figure, but do you believe in Jesus as the son of God who left his position in heaven, the greatest honour in heaven, and he came to take our failure and our sin and our guilt upon him on the cross so that we might be presented to God guilt-free and shameless. Or do you believe in Jesus, the Son of God, who left the joys of heaven, the relationship with his Father, came to suffer pain and humiliation so that when we hear his call, we can run into his arms like the bride runs into the arms of a bridegroom? Now, if you want to find out more about him, because after all, it took the disciples quite a long time and they to believe who he was and what he came for, then there's a load of ways you can do that. There's lots of resources on the table on the way when you came in. You could ask a Christian friend to read the Bible with you. Also, we run a course, and I've got a prop here. We run a course called uh, Christianity Explored. Uh, we're starting a course on the 16th of April. Uh, it runs for uh, six or seven weeks, for an hour and a half or so in an evening. And you come and you can ask as many questions as you like about who Jesus was and what he came for. You've got one of these either on your seats, under your bottoms, or on the floor. So please do take one with you. There's no better time, is there, to get to know the real Jesus than Easter. So please do take this home and consider coming along to our course. But for those of us that can answer that question, do you believe in him, with a yes, what does that mean? What difference would it make really believing that the cross dealt with our sin and shame once and for all? How would that change the way that we live? Well, I think we'd stop using our multiple fig leaves to cover up our guilt and failure. Rather than drowning in our guilt or carrying out some sort of external behaviour time and again to make ourselves feel better, we'd go back to the cross instead time and again. We'd thank Jesus that he came to experience humiliation on our behalf. And we trust in the once and for all sacrifice that Jesus made. Christian, when you're tempted to hide your failure and that sick-to-the-stomach embarrassment in the way that you behave, when you're tempted not to confess to a mistake at work, when you drink too much to escape the feeling of guilt, whatever your fig leaf is, you need to remember there's only actually one place to go to hide that offers the protection that we really need, where our shame is covered and where we no longer need to fear, and that's the cross. The Bible reminds us, doesn't it, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His death and resurrection is the only remedy for the shame we feel over our failures. There's nowhere else to go with our sin. As we trust Jesus, as we trust for him for his righteousness, as the provider of everything we need, then our shame will lose its power over us. Friends, in a couple of weeks, Johnny's eyes will light up as he sees Ailey walking down the aisle. Her eyes might light up too, hopefully. <laughs> That's just a foretaste of how God sees us, how he delights in Christians. His heart misses a beat, if you like, when he looks at us. That's because he sees us as he sees his son. Not as guilt-ridden muck-ups like we sometimes feel, but pure and beautiful children. And that should change the way we live. 
So let's put away our fig leaves. Let's turn time and time again back to the cross. And let's, as we get nearer Easter, let's thank God for his son.